0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to the Book of Psalms, Chapter Two. Hallelujah. And uh, we are continuing our journey, verse by verse, through the Psalms. And today, uh, we're going to study the second Psalm together. So, um, I had somebody text me this week, and they were reading ahead in the Psalms and getting, getting all excited about uh, what they were reading. And I was sharing with them that just working through this in this way, kind of an expository journey through the Psalms, is really appreciating, or it's increasing my appreciation for them. Um, so, as we begin to look at Psalm 2 specifically... Uh, there is some debate about the authorship of Psalm 2, but in Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter and John and their companions, they attribute this psalm, Psalm 2, to David. They quote it. Uh, it's pertinent to the, inf- the uh, situation that they're in at the moment. And so they quote Psalm 2, and they said, out of the mouth of David it, it came. And so uh, I-, I would say all other evidence and arguments aside about the authorship of Psalm 2, uh, we know that the guys who studied under Jesus... Um, about a thousand years after this psalm was written, that they believed David wrote it. Uh, and they were probably in a better position to know about it than a scholar today that is, you know, 3,000 years removed from the writing of the psalm. So, I mean, it was, it was a thousand years between David writing it and Peter and John saying in Acts 4 that, that David wrote it, but they were a lot closer than we are another 2,000 years later. And ultimately, um, those guys hung out with Jesus, he taught them the scriptures personally. Uh, So I'm going to go with them on it. I don't know where you're at about it. but uh, (laughs) So I'm going to say David probably wrote Psalm 2. So let's read it together, okay? We're in Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. First of all, uh, something we want to know as we plunge into this is that this is widely regarded as a messianic psalm. Uh, It is really rich with dual meanings and forward looking prophetic utterances. Uh, So let's keep our eyes open as we work through this and see if we can spot those. I want to read to you something out of Calvin's commentary on the second psalm, kind of along those lines. He said this, he said that David prophesied concerning Christ is clearly manifest from this, that he knew his own kingdom to be merely a shadow, and in order to learn to apply to Christ whatever David in times past sang concerning himself, we must hold this principle, which we meet with everywhere in all the prophets." That he, with his posterity, was made king, not so much for his own sake as to be a type of the Redeemer. And so we see a lot from David's life and a lot of David's uh, decrees in the Psalms to be messianic in nature, looking forward. And it's kind of amazing how he can be describing the events of uh, his life that's going on around him and it paralleled directly with what Christ ends up going through. And so uh, we're going to see that all through this. Uh, so verses 1 through 3, let's go just kind of work through this verse by verse. It says, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And so, first of all, we have a, we have a question verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? We find the answer to the question in verse 3. That answer is, and I'm going to read it from another translation because nobody in here knows what a fetter is, so I'll give you another translation. It says, let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. Uh, I, I didn't mean that as condescending. I don't know what a fetter is either. I know what a chain is, and I realize that's a kind of restraint, so... Um, that, that gets us to the point. What they're saying is, why, why, why are the nations in an uproar? Why are the peoples devising a vain thing? Well, because they have this idea that they need to tear off the chains that God has put on them and that are put on them by his anointed one. And they want to free themselves from the restraints they, they think that God has put on them. So the reason why people, kings, and nations set themselves in opposition to the Lord is the same reason that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Here's the reason. It is the wrong-headed and foolish belief that God's laws and decrees and commands are chains that restrain us from some unrealized joy and fulfillment that he is withholding from us. That's wrong-headed and foolish. Satan was able to convince them our first parents That the thing God had told them not to mess with was actually a good thing that God was keeping from them. You guys remember that story? God says, do whatever you want in here. Have a great time. It's going to be great. I'll come down and talk to you every once in a while. It's going to be cool. Just don't eat from that tree right over there. And what does Satan come along and do? He's able to convince them that the one thing God said, don't mess with that, that that was him somehow putting a bond and restraint on them that was holding them from some fulfillment or ecstasy or joy that... And it was just just him being an oppressive dictator uh, when the reality is that that whole idea is never true, ever. God's laws are always loving and always best. And he is glorified in the joyous elation of his people. You guys know that? You believe that? God is glorified in the joy of his people. And he's glorified when our joy is found in him because then it can't be taken from us. Then it's perpetual and eternal. If my joy is found in God, if my joy is found in the affirmation that comes in knowing that Christ loved me enough to die for me, no one's ever going to take that from me. Yeah, but what if everything in your life falls apart? What if you lose everything you have? Guess what? I still have the thing that is the source of joy, and thus I have unshakable joy, impermeable joy, joy that can't be taken from me or robbed by any situation because no one is going to reverse Christ's love for me. Can't do it. Can't take it away. It's something set into eternity. Praise God. And so I can be, if I choose to believe that, joyous and fulfilled in every situation. So it is only when we buy the lie that God is the providential party police and that he is about ruining our fun or withholding some good thing from us that we can be tricked into stepping into the fowler's snare of sin. What am I, I just said something big to you. I want you to think about it. The only way you ever get trapped in sin is when you believe the same thing that these nations and kings and our first parents believed. The only way you'll choose something other than obeying God is if you believe that thing you're choosing instead of him is better for you than what God would give you or what God has for you. We have to pridefully believe we know better than God ever to sin or disobey him. We have to set ourselves above him in wisdom. We have to set ourselves above him in knowing what is best for us. <laughs> it's different when we put it that way, isn't it? it? makes the situation look different. And we end up in the fowler's snare every time we do that. The ability to be wise and defeat sin begins in believing this right here. If we would believe this, we would be much less susceptible to the temptations and sins that entangle our feet so often if we'd believe this right here. Absolutely everything God asks us to do is for our good. And everything God asks us not to do is for our good. Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? And most of us, if asked a poll question or a survey question, if we believe that, we'd say yes. But where the rubber really meets the road, where we find out if we really believe that, is when it comes down to the day-to-day. When it comes down to the choice of whether to obey Him or do this thing that I think is going to bring me more joy or bring me more happiness or bring me more fulfillment. If God asks me not to do something, it is for my good. Well, I don't understand how. That's okay. (laughs) You don't have to. There's many things God will ask us not to do that we may not get it. There's many things He will ask us to do that we may not get it. But ultimately it comes down to will I trust Him? Do I believe in what the totality of the Scriptures tell me? That his love for me is never failing and that his his laws are motivated by his love. That his perfect fatherly character is where those bounds and restrictions come from. And because of that, what they do is actually bring freedom instead of oppression. Because I'm free from my own foolish tendency to end up in the Fowler snare. I'm free from my own foolish tendency of ending up in the pit of my own creation through choosing disobedience to him. I'm free to serve God. That's the way it really works, because that's what I was created to do. And in that is where fulfillment and joy is going to be found. You might say to me as a pushback, but, but sex outside of marriage doesn't feel bad. It doesn't feel bad. It, it, it really, it, I'm going to be honest with you, bro, preacher, it feels good. Okay? I would say a couple things. Just think, think through this with me. I would tell you the warmth of a fire on an autumn evening, that feels good too. Unless it gets out of the safe boundaries built for it to occupy, then it will burn you and it will kill you. Let that fire leap. Let a coal pop out of that fire and end up lighting whatever's around you. Now all of a sudden it's not in the place it was built for. And that thing that was providing warmth and providing Uh, really a good feeling all of a sudden becomes something that could end your life. It's causing damage. That's how it works. Secondly, I would say, far too many have been led by the fickle and unreliable compass of your feelings for far too long. Each of us would do well to assess our lives and remember the times, our feelings in the moment Proved to be an unhelpful guide in navigating a situation. We would each do good to spend time sitting down and reflecting how many times my feelings about a specific person or situation in a moment ended up not necessarily being a trustworthy guide once it was all said and done. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll probably find many events in your life where that was true. You'd either believed a lie that was the cause of the feelings anyway or some other sinful tendency in you caused your feelings about the situation to be off kilter, informed not by the truth of God's word, but by some other thing that led you astray. Each of us would do well to assess our lives and remember the times our feelings in the moment proved an unhelpful guide in navigating a situation and ultimately led us to a destination of pain and hurt. The loving truth and instruction of our perfect Father God will always lead us to a destination of joy and pleasure, but often the path we take to get there will be named self-denial and sacrifice. Oftentimes that path God shepherds us on, it's, if he's doing it, if he's called for it, if he's commanded it, it will always lead to joy and pleasure, but oftentimes the path to get there will be self-denial and sacrifice. We tend to live as if we are trapped in the twisted hallucinations of an insane man. We run from God and we strain against him, thinking he is the bringer of bondage and a vengeful dictator. When the truth is that 2 Corinthians 3 tells us the Lord is the very source of liberty. And this is part of what happens when we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. We're given new hearts, and those hearts are capable of seeing the truth for what it is. We don't have to be deceived, and we don't have to be blinded. We don't have to be led by those those unreliable feelings that so often get us into trouble. We can now be led by God's Spirit instead, which will never fail us, never lead us astray, never bring us to a place of ultimate pain and hardship. We may go through self-denial and sacrifice on the way to pleasure, but ultimately what he's leading us is to himself, which leads us, To the ultimate and best pleasure and fulfillment that could ever be found. For a human that was created for God's presence to be reconciled with that presence. That's the final win. That's the final victory. And that's where he's trying to get us all the time. Why? Because he's mean? No, because he's really, really good. Why? Because he wants to control you? No, because his, his, his love for you causes him to press beyond every one of those times you can think in your life where you've, instead of obeying, following him, instead of doing the, the, the thing that w- would have made the most sense if you were listening to the truth, Every single time you've done that, he's not abandoned you, he's not given up on you. As many times as we've done that, as many times as we've turned our back on him, he refuses to stop pursuing us with his love. He refuses to stop pursuing us with his truth. He refuses to to stop beckoning for us to come to him. He won't do it. It doesn't matter how hard you try to get away from him. His love for you will cause him to pursue you. And I'm really thankful that's true. Because I did a lot of running the other way. I did a lot of being led by my feelings. That compass is broke, man. (laughs) That needle just spins in circles and ends you up lost. A couple of you know what I'm talking about. Amen. I'm going to read you this quote by Spurgeon along those lines. He says this To a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable, but to the saved sinner, it is easy and light. We may judge ourselves by this. Do we love that yoke? Or do we wish it cast from us? Oftentimes, either a a non-Christian, who somebody that doesn't really believe the gospel but is affirmed in their own self-righteousness, I'll ask them this question. Or, or somebody who has put their faith in Christ but is dealing with condemnation and not feeling worthy of the salvation they've already received, I can ask both people the same question to drill down to the heart of the matter, and that's, what is your deepest desire? And that's part of what Spurgeon is tapping into here. Is that is that yoke of Christ, is that something that you take joy in? Do you, do you feel, is, is the weight of the yoke of the beauty of the gospel, is that something that's a comfort to you? Or is, is the fact that there's oftentimes Something you may feel like you want to do in the moment and you can't because of the conviction that comes and knowing Christ died for you. Is, is that something you wish was off of you? What is your deepest desire? Is your deepest desire to serve and obey Christ? I know you don't always do it. Neither do I. But what's the deepest desire, all the way down in the bottom of your heart? What is the thing that really, when you peel it all the way back, what do you want most? Is it to serve and obey Him? Or is it to do what you want to do? Because that's what he's saying here. This is how we can judge ourselves. You want to figure out if you belong to Jesus? What do you want most? Do you want to be with him? Do you want to obey him? Even though you struggle sometimes and don't do that perfectly, yes. But is that really what you want more than anything? To obey Christ because you believe not only he's worthy of that obedience, but that that is best for you. Or all the way down at the deepest part, do you just want to do you? You just want to do what you want to do. I don't say that to get the Christians in the room to question their salvation. I'm saying that to give us a tool for deep self-introspection. And you may have found yourself here today affirmed somehow in a bunch of good things you've done or, or a list, an ever-shortening list of bad things that you haven't done. And I would just say to you today, lovingly, that that's not what it's about. Ultimately, what it comes down to is Will you trust in the finished work of Christ? Will you believe that the grace provided through Jesus' sacrifice is enough to pay the price for your sins? And if you do believe that, your heart will be changed. And what you'll find then is that even though you'll still have, there'll still be tension and there'll still be times when you're pulled to either side and you have to work through temptation by God's Spirit, you'll find the deepest desire changes. When you become a Christian, this is one of the major things that happens. This is part of what a new, that new creation language means. The set of desires that I had ultimately it was about self and self-gratification and doing what is best for me, being about me, that is the heart of every person that has not been transformed by Christ. They can't help it. They are about self-service. If your heart has gone from that to ultimately wanting to obey Christ in all things, that's an indicator. You can. So if you today are fighting with condemnation, if, if the enemy's tried to come to you and throw evidence from your life uh, as an indictment against the fact that you belong to Jesus. First of all, I would say, don't ever get sucked into this this back and forth with the devil where he's trying to throw sins in your face that you've committed and you're trying to throw back at him some good stuff you've done as evidence you're a Christian. Come on, guys, you know. that's All he's doing is tricking you into a works-based righteousness system right there. That's not how we, That's not how we live. I don't know that I'm a Christian because I've done some good things. I know that I'm a Christian because... Jesus died for me, and I know that He changed me. I can I can look down as much as I have ability. I know I know our heart can be wicked; it can trick us. But as I, I when I really sit down and I think about it, what do I want most? I want to obey Him. I don't I don't always make that choice because sometimes I get tempted and blinded. And I don't think of things as they really are, and so I get pulled into that Fowler snare. But but when all that's aside, when I'm just alone with me in the Lord, and I'm thinking about it, and I'm I'm meditating on it. What is my deepest desire? Ultimately, my deepest desire is Him. I want Him. I believe wholeheartedly in the love that He expressed to me through the cross, and so what I want more than anything is Him, and that makes me want to obey Him. Him. I love Him. I love Him. I love Jesus, and that makes me want to obey Him. Do you love Him? Have you been loved by Him, and has that changed you? Does that your desire for obedience? Does that make you see the restrictions and the parameters that he's laid out in his law? Do you see that as the beautiful guardianship of a father that loves you? Or do you see it as the, the restrictions of a dictator that wants to control you? These are part of the ways if you can figure out where your heart's at and where your relationship with God is. Now, some of you thus far may have uh, picked up on what seems like a problem with the theology of the psalmist. He is saying that these kings and rulers, that they take their stand against the Lord. But some of you might be thinking, well, doesn't Romans 13 say that God appoints kings and rulers? You guys remember that? That So that's kind of weird, right? So let's, let's read Romans 13 one together. It says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God including the kings that are rising up against him? Apparently, because said there is no authority except from God. This creates some complications. Does it not? It does. With this in itself, now, the person that is kind of lazy in their approach to the scriptures and maybe looking for an out as far as submitting to God anyways, could look at this, draw that up as a contradiction and say, that's my escape hatch, I don't have to mess with Jesus anymore, because there's no, I mean, why would God appoint kings that are going to end up standing up against him? That seems like a self-defeating purpose. Uh, I would agree with you this does seem confusing, and I do agree with you that it's a rational question, though we, whenever we ask questions to God or at God, we should always have a humble tone, assuming that he has an answer. That's the right posture to approach him with. But we could ask, why would God establish kings that would oppose him? And it's interesting. Um, this, I had a situation happen this week, and... Uh, I'm going to tell you about it, and it involves my niece. I didn't know she was going to be here tonight, but she is, so I'm going to leave her name unsaid and try not to embarrass her, but uh, this this is, to me, one of those things you can kind of say, um, oh, wow, well, that's a coincidence, but I have this stuff happen in my life too much, that this week she ends up in a situation where we end up in a conversation that led us to these exact verses and th- these concepts, and we're studying uh, Psalms 2, which deals with the exact same thing. Uh, you can do what you want with that, but so... My niece calls me this week, and she's 17. She's a senior in high school. She's been going to uh, Cincinnati Christian, but her senior year, uh, just based on like f- the forward plan, it was best for her to go back to uh, Fairfield High School, so she's in public school. And so she's there a couple weeks. She's in like a modern history class, something to that effect. And uh, so she calls me because they handed out this this worksheet, and the worksheet, the title of it, um, is something to the effect of "How enlightened are you?" which, <laughs> all right, as soon as she told me that, I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm trying to not let her know on the phone, how, like, I, you know, I'm sure my teeth are grinding because I'm already frustrated because I, I don't know what, if you're picking up on it, but, so part of the point of that is to make you feel dumb if you're not enlightened based upon, you know, the way they would interpret that. So the first question on the sheet, believe it or not, we're in Psalm, we're in Psalm 2 here talking about kings that rise up against God, and we, we run into this apparent contradiction of, God appointing rulers, but them rising up against them. This happened this week. The first question, and the reason she called me, is, so that worksheet you're supposed to write, you agree or disagree with the following statement. First question. President Obama was appointed by God. Agree or disagree? I see smoke pouring out of the ears of a few of you. It's, that's complicated, isn't it? It's not a super quick answer. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe if you committed to the text, we just read Romans 13, so you're like, okay, I'd agree with that. So what happened for her in this experience is everyone had already started filling out the worksheet. Everybody else in the class puts disagree. Part of it was because the teacher had already given a little bit of uh, their opinion on the possibility of that, I guess, either based on their loathing of President Obama or the fact that they would think it'd be archaic for you to believe God appoints anybody, which is probably more likely since we're doing a worksheet called How Enlightened Are You, right? So this is the situation she finds herself in, so she calls me. And uh, because she doesn't want to just put disagree because everyone else did, and she wanted to talk through it because she realized she had, this is my 17-year-old niece, senior in high school. Remember, you know, most of us in our 20s and 30s are still having a hard time, you know, standing out for Jesus for Romans one sixteen to really be true for us, that we're not ashamed of the gospel, she instantly made the connection that she might have an opportunity right at this point that if she put agree because of Romans 13, that somebody might call her out about it and she might get the opportunity to stand up and somehow lead that into a gospel conversation. And so I'm already I was driving, so I couldn't dance. But if I hadn't been, I would have been, you know, doing one of these deals because... <laughs> I, you know, like, and I told her, I'm like, this, I'm, th- I'm, tr- this is my whole life is trying to get Christians to do this right here, like, look for gospel opportunities and take them, right? So she is willing to get blasted by the teacher and all the rest of the students, but she just wants to work through. Okay, but how do I really think about that? Because that's that is a hard question. Like Romans 13 is there, but then there's stuff, that, you know, that maybe presidents and kings and other rulers do that is totally opposite what God's word says. And so how do we believe that he put them in? And like, how does all that work? And so, um, so we started with, we can't get away from Romans 13. It's cut and dry. All rulers and authorities are established by God. Boom. Now, so that's there. So we have to say agree, but we also have to be able to explain that. So the first thing we have to remember is that sometimes, sometimes, God will let rulers be established or let things in general happen simply because we in our rebellion insist upon it and we need to learn a lesson from it. I don't know if I agree with that. Well, hold on, you're wrong. So, and so I I pointed to 1 Samuel, right? Chapter 8, the Israelites. They're looking around all the other countries around them, all the other nations. They're like, What's up, man? They all got kings. They got human kings. All we have is you. We want a human king. Give us a human king. God's like, guys, it's going to be better for you. And this is, God, this, is, this is how God always relates to us. And it seems like this is how we always push back to him. We're so foolish sometimes. Guys, it's going to be better for you. I want to just be your king. If I give you a king, they're going to take your stuff. They're going to get corrupt with power. I mean, if I give you a human ruler, it's going to happen. If I put them in that place of authority where only I should belong, it's going to go to their head. They're going to mistreat you. You need to listen to me. Don't do this. What's our response? Ah, we don't care about that. Give us a king. We know better. (laughs) Okay. Here you go. How would it go? How is, how is human kingship in general throughout time gone? Not so good, right? So, so we worked through it. We talked about that. So yes, God does establish all rulers, but there's no way we can know his mind about why he does what he does. Okay? So in this example, I mean, I mean look, at, look at Egypt. God let Egypt be raised up as a power so that he could crush them openly in front of all the nations. Because, why? Because they enslaved and abused his people a whole bunch of people learned a lesson out of Egypt's disobedience that you don't mess with God's people. Babylon. How they doing today? Find them on a map. Nope. And listen, I, am very, I, I believe the book of Acts that tells me that God appoints the times and places where I live, and so I'm very thankful to God that I was born in America, that he's called me to be on gospel mission in America. I don't loathe that at all. I'm not in any way anti-American. I'm thankful for many blessings and good things about this country. But let me say something to you. America keeps disobeying God like it is. We're not above the Egypt and Babylon situation. Do what you want with that. That's what I'm saying. Don't assume you know what God's doing. Well, if God's sovereign, how did Obama get in office? I don't know. There's a couple. I mean, just off the top of my head, first of all, he could be trying to remind us through the failures of our human leaders how much we need him. And and, that's not a commentary on Obama, period. Go back as many presidents as you want. That's true. Have any of them been perfect? No. Have most of them had some scandal? Yes. Why? Because it's a human trying to do God's job. (laughs) not going to go well. It's going to go to their head. It's, it's not right. But we got to deal with it. And it's the way it is. And it is the way, it's, it's going to be that way until Jesus returns and takes that throne back. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe God's trying to teach us a lesson and remind us how much we need him. Maybe America's going to get raised up and then sat back down. I don't know but if that leads to god's well what if that means hard times for us I, okay if that leads to God's glory then I'm in oh that sounds scary I mean do we trust Jesus that's not i am pro god not anti-American please understand me i'm I'm just trying to tell you 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 gotta we gotta we gotta Separate this link we've made between God and America. God will only ever do things that makes America awesomer. You know, like <laughs> Jesus is going to ride in on a bald eagle. <laughs> That's not the way it's going to go. <laughs> He's going to ride in on a white horse, and every nation, with all its prideful ins- insolence, is going to bow its knee and acknowledge Him as Lord. Everybody, everywhere, the whole earth because he's the one true king, his throne's above every throne, and because I'm on his team, I'm real happy about that, amen, amen. praise God, and so uh, <clears throat> my niece did, she, she went ahead and did that, and uh, unfortunately, they didn't call her in front of the class to defend her position, but she did get paired up with another girl who had said she disagreed, and had the opportunity to talk to her and tell her why she agreed. And that girl ended up by the end of it saying, you know what, I think I have to agree with it as well. And so her boldness and trust in Jesus, even on a deeply, like, that's, that's a lot of tall cotton to walk through to try to say that. Well, here's why I agree with that statement. But I was so blessed by the fact that she did. And God used that minimally to plant a seed uh, in, in that one girl's heart that she got to talk to. So I'm really thankful for gospel boldness. And... Uh, the fact that she didn't just bow to you know, what she saw everyone else doing. So may we all have that kind of boldness. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> I'll just say this as a wrap up to that, because <clears throat> I don't know if I, I kind of got excited and just winged it. But let me make sure I say this to clean all that up. I don't presume to know all of the inner workings of the mind of God or the motivations of his sovereign decisions. Okay, so I gave you some possibilities just from my limited vantage point, of why we've had a succession of leaders in America that are clearly imperfect and maybe in some ways anti God. Okay? I gave you some opportunity or you know, potential options for why that is, but ultimately, I don't presume to know what he's doing or why, right? Because none of what I said could happen, and God tomorrow could, could blow upon America by his spirit and, and a revival happen like it's never been seen in the earth. And all of a sudden, you know, Jesus Christ gospel music just breaks out all over the land and everybody's praising him. That could happen tomorrow. We should pray for that. We should work for that. But I don't know if that's going to happen. We might have to be broken before we get humbled enough to seek him again. I don't know. I'm telling you, I don't presume to know. But what I do know is he's sovereign. And so if stuff goes down, it's not because he was asleep. That's hard stuff to work through. There's lots of implications, but we need to because that's the truth. When you start having a, oh, well, maybe that slipped through the fingers of God theology, it gets messy really quick. That's not how it works. Uh, Sometimes he lets leaders be established so they may be cast down openly. Sometimes he does it so the people yearn again for the perfect kingship that is only available from God himself. Um, And again, he is orchestrating all of everything throughout all of history, uh, and he's going to bring everything down to a point where it ends up with him in total victory and Jesus on the throne. And so I don't know what all the parts and pieces are. that I couldn't even begin to try to manage it all in my head, but I know he's got it. And he's working towards his ultimate ends, and that is why I'll go to sleep tonight and not be that worried. Amen. You can be mad glad or sad about it, but it is, I mean, that kind of is what it is. Um, 4 through 6. Okay, it says... (laughs) If you didn't like that part, you're going to get even happier as we go. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Who's he scoffing at? Everyone that says, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. These that are raging against the Lord. Uh, The Lord's laughing at them. He says, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. One commentary I read says that this description of God laughing and mocking is a bold anthropomorphism, or more simply said, it's a compar- It's a really bold comparison to human behavior. I think sometimes in the Scriptures, God allowed um, prophets and writers to write things so that we could kind of understand the point, but in so doing, sometimes I think human attributes maybe get ascribed to God that just gives us the sense. I don't know if he's actually sitting up there like, ha, 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 look what they're doing. Um, but, so we don't know if he actually laughs at these foolish rebels who conspire together against him. Um, but we, because we also know that our sin breaks the heart of God in a deep and profound way, right? So we have other scriptures that tell us God's not happy about sin, it breaks his heart. He's wanting people to surrender, not sin against him. And so this, this idea of him laughing and scoffing at them, it can make us think, okay, well, does God not care about sin? He's just like, this you know maniacal like Corella Deville um, just kind of cackling at the stupidity of people, ready to crush them for fun, is that what he 's doing? Um, because I think we also tend to limit God to like one emotion at a time, which is not even true of us. Um, so we know that sin breaks the heart of God, but clearly there's something here about the stupidity of humanity at times and their rebellion against him that can be humorous. Um, I think it's possible that God can hold intention tension um, and experience multiple emotions at once and probably with a greater capacity than we can. Um, I, I would just call you to the attention that we can have the potential to be sad and yet find f- something funny at the same time. You ever been like crying about something or really bummed, but then something just strike you funny? And so I'm still like grieving over the fact that this thing is happening and yet somebody either that really knows me well was able to make me laugh, or I watched a cat video, or, you know, something just struck your funny bone. And so it's not like the sadness went away and and enabled you to laugh, but both were able to exist in tension. You guys know what I'm talking about? Um, I'm a little emotionally dense, so I'm assuming you guys have experienced this. I'm doing good to have one emotion at a time, but um, I've heard about this. I've I've read about it. So... um, so I just wanted to give you an example of this, because you could you could see, like, think, man, God's really mean. He's, like, he's laughing at them. Why doesn't he, he care? Because if you keep reading the psalm, their sin's going to lead to their destruction. No, he cares about it. Trust and believe. His heart is broken every time someone chooses to rebel against him. But but sometimes, like, just the utter stupidity of our rebellion, I'm sure, can be amusing, kind of like it would be in this situation. So just imagine it's like my two-year-old son, Max, okay? Okay. Uh, Imagine he's, he just decides right now that he is tired of my tyrannical rule, and he's tired of the chains and restrictions that I'm putting on him, uh, that he feels like there should be baby pools full of snacks available for him to eat out of constantly all day, spread throughout the house, okay? And if I could tap into the deep, like, inner longings that he has, I would assume that's in there, um, so he, he thinks there should be baby pools full of snacks all the time that he can just eat out of constantly. He can get in there and, like, lay in it and eat. And he, that's, like, to him, that's how life should be. But I'm always telling him that he has to wait until the next meal to eat. That, he, you know, you've had five snacks, son, in the last hour. You're not having any more until lunch. We have that conversation every day, <laughs> many times a day. Okay, so that, that happens. So let's say he decides he's done with that. This dictator doesn't love me. If you really love me, give me what I want. And I want baby pools full of snacks everywhere. This guy doesn't get it. And so I'm, I'm done. I'm going to rise up against him. So decide, you know, he, he comes into the room and he's going to take me out. And so he starts, you know, punching and kicking with his pudgy little arms like, like an overweight little ninja, right? And, <laughs> and you know... And, and you guys have seen it before, like somebody much shorter than, than somebody else fighting. And, you know, let's say he's given everything he's got. He's going he's to overthrow dad, but I just got my hand on his forehead and, and I'm holding him. And he's down there, you know, face all red, just going buck wild. Like if that situation was happening, I'm going to have two emotions going on at the same time. I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm going to be sad a little bit that he doesn't believe the rules I give him about not eating snacks every single second of the day, that that rule is for his good because I love him. It's going to hurt me a little bit that he doesn't trust me enough to believe that my restriction on his snack intake is because I love him I don't want him to have, you know, uh, I don't want to take him on Mori Povich, right, and, and to be the, the fat kid on there that you got to chain the fridge and stuff, right? Well, we don't watch those shows, Pastor Vince, because we're so holy. Well, okay. I was in a public place, and it was on one time, and I saw it. I'm not home during the day anyway, so don't take your judgment elsewhere. Okay? Um, But, no, really, I love him. I want him to be healthy, and I know that um, if dude got to eat as much snacks as he wants, he, he might already not be alive, okay? Because he's about that snack life. So... Um, I'm going to be sad that he doesn't trust me enough to understand that the the rule I've set is for his good. That's going to make me sad. But I'm also, I'm going to be a little bit amused at his futile attempt to overthrow me. Right? Because he's doing pungy ninja fighting moves and he thinks he's going to beat Dad up. Now, when he's 14 and 15, based on his rate of growth right now, I'm not going to be laughing about it. I'm going to be doing everything I can uh, to put him in a submission lock and try to maintain, you know, leadership of the house. But... That's to be determined then. Um, right now, he wouldn't have a shot. And it'd be kind of funny if he tried. It would just look funny. I'm going to be a little bit hurt that he doesn't trust me. And, and, and just because of his belief in how much I love him and, and his love for me, that he's not going to want to, you know, believe me when I say, son, you don't need baby pools full of snacks. That, that's going to hurt me a little bit. But I'm also going to kind of laugh at him because... You know, the reality is, even if, you know, like these other kings did, even if they got together, even if him and Max, Lucy, they get a bunch of their other toddler friends, and they, they join in the rebellion, right? And all of a sudden, I, I, I come out in my backyard, and there's 25 toddlers with sticks, and they're like, buddy, it's, it's the day. Today's the day. We're going to end you. Your, your rule is done, right? You're laughing. This is funny, but I would also be sad. Like, dad, hey, you guys are so upset about this. You went and got other people, and you have sticks? What is this, right? So I'm going to be a little hurt, but it's also going to be funny. I'm going to be snapping Instagram photos as I'm kicking these kids in the stomach to let them know. You can go get as many toddlers as you want. Bring 200. You're not going to win. I'll crush you all. Take your snicks and break them. That's how it would go. Feeling pretty tough about beating up the toddlers. I don't know. That's kind of funny. Think about 200 toddlers, man. They get your legs they might get me. They don't have that many friends. I don't have to worry about that. (laughs) I I believe that this is, I believe what I've just kind of done there, (laughs) what have I done there? What I just did there, I believe is an imperfect illustration, but it it can kind of help us to understand the idea of God laughing in this situation. You see what I'm saying? Um, I I think it's so utterly ridiculous when we understand any time we would stand in opposition to God, it's like Max trying to beat me up. And it could be kind of funny, but it's also heartbreaking because it's, it's fool-headed and it's wrong. Um, and, and in the same way that I might let Max, you know, punch like that for a few minutes and give his best shot because I'm amused by it, there is going to be a point where if he doesn't stop, I'm going to deepen my voice and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak to him in a tone that's going to shake him from his little delusion. I'm going to let him know, this is done now you can stop. And that's what God's talking about here, that he's going to speak to them in his anger and he's going to terrify them in his fury. He he might let you go for a minute, but ultimately, he's going to let you know. You keep doing this, it's going to go bad for you. It's time to stop. And and if I need to go further than that, I may go further than that to discipline him and to bring him in line with reality. But I would also, I need to say to you, at, at no point during any of that process would I stop loving him. I think that's what it looks like. Ever since sin entered the world, there have been opponents of God. There have been atheist regimes like ancient Rome that have sought to snuff out the light of the gospel completely from the earth. And they weren't even even mostly atheists. They were polytheistic, but they just hated Jesus, bottom line. There's There's been regimes that have hated Jesus like ancient Rome, and they've wanted to totally snuff out the light of the gospel completely from the earth, There have been naturalistic atheist philosophers like Friedrich Nietzsche who have declared that God is dead in light of the fact that man has become so scientific and enlightened. And I would just say to you today, uh, ancient Rome is nothing but ruins and Nietzsche is pushing up daisies, but Jesus Christ is doing fine. You want proof? Here's proof. You're sitting in a room of people who have been transformed by the power of God. And because of that, they stopped everything else that was going on tonight because they wanted to gather, to sing to Jesus, to study his word, to take communion at his table, and to worship him by giving back some of the treasure that he's entrusted to us. You want proof that Jesus is alive and well today? Look around you. You think other people, I mean, we we live in the busiest time the world has ever known. I know every single one of you had something else you could have put in this slot, and yet... What you desired more than that was to be here with God's people, studying God's word in his presence. Jesus is alive and well. He's doing good. We're not singing songs to Nietzsche. Nobody's cutting checks to Rome to pay taxes, are they? Not ancient Rome. They're done. Guess what? I'm still here worshiping Jesus, and that's going to go on forever. That's never going to stop. All his detractors and his haters, they fall by the wayside. He's the eternal king. It's going to win all the way. Amen. Uh, This brings us to verses 7 through 9. And and I believe, and there may be some that disagree, but I think it'd be hard to. I I believe that 7 through 9 is actually a prophetic utterance from the perspective of Jesus. Uh, And evidence to that is the writer of the book of Hebrews quotes this passage right here. um, Psalm chapter 2, 7 through 9. Quotes it as evidence of the deity of Jesus and his superiority to all the angels. Um, You know, where it says, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Um, I think it's also important for us to think about the word begotten and why it's used here. Uh, The word begotten in contrast to the word created. Jesus was not created. Uh, Actually, Colossians 1, 16 through 17 tells us that he created everything. He was not created, but he created everything that was created. So begotten describes a relationship between two beings of the same essential nature. Um, so, for example, we, we create things of a different essential being and nature than ourselves. So, to clean that up, a man creates a statue, but he begets a child. Um, and so I, I think what we see here is verses 7 through 9 is David prophetically speaking from the perspective of Jesus where he is saying, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord that he said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Uh, that, so verse 8 is two things. One, I think it's kind of an ironclad idea that that's Jesus speaking because he's the one that's giving... You know, given the nations as in his inheritance and uh, all the way to the very ends of the earth, but it's also amen, hallelujah, scripture, right? Because all the nations have been given to Jesus, his possession, and ultimately by the end of this thing, all the ends of the earth will be under his dominion. And so, guys, I know there's a lot to be worried about right now. I know there's a lot of stuff that is unstable and wild out there, and I know there's all kinds of things that could cause you anxiety if you just for a second think outside of, of the, the scope of your little world. But we don't have to worry. We don't have to be anxious. We can have peace. Praise God for that. Because of this right here. We know how it ends. Uh In verse 8, we see our great hope prophesied, the fulfillment of all things, the time when all the earth again bows in humble submission to our one true king. We also see this picture painted in Revelation 11.15. It says, Then the, the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Woo! You happy about that? I am. I can't wait. I mean, all that is within me aches with yearning for that day. But I have to say, nevertheless, not my will but his be done. I have to live in the tension that Paul lived in to say, for me, to live as Christ. What that means is for me to live, if I'm alive, it's going to be for Christ. I'm going to be about his business. I'm going to be for his glory. I'm going to obey him and try to walk as close as I can with him. If I'm alive, it's for Christ. But to die, that would be sweet gain. And I don't know. I don't know for us in this room today if we will if the the beautiful sleep of death will come upon us or if we will see the returning of our king i don't know which way it's going to go uh, i had a discussion with someone this week about how you live in this tension right because you look around it just it, it seems like time itself has accelerated i don't know if you've caught that but it seems like days go faster than they used to uh there's so many events that just see, it seems like this thing can't last much longer without intervention from jesus so it it seems like we're coming to the end, but we just we know that it's foolish for us to try to gauge that or or come up with a date, and so we have to live in this tension of knowing that Christ literally could come before this service ends, but he also could wait until our children's children's children are born or beyond, and so how do you live in that tension because it's like you would do some stuff different if like God was like. Just kidding, guys. I decided I'm going to let you know, and he, you know, he sends down a, a heavenly email, and it says 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. That's it. 6 a.m. tomorrow morning, you're going to hear the trumpet blow. Like, most of you would probably spend your night differently than you will without that email. Yes? Right? Uh, me, I would be on desperate, desperate phone calls with a bunch of people I love, asking them to repent. Uh I would spend every last bit of breath and energy I had before Jesus returned trying to get people to repent and trust Him. Uh, and I assume you would do the same. Um, but so, why aren't we doing that? Because He could come in the morning, right? And so, we have to live in this tension. So, we have to live lives that are in total compliance and obedience as much as is possible to Jesus and His will, so that when He brings those divine appointments and those chances for us to have gospel discussions that we're ready to do that and willing to do it. So we need to, we need to live in that, in that kind of mindset. But we also you know, we also have to function in the world that we live in, right? And so there, there is a tension there, and it's, it, it can be a difficult one. But ultimately, you boil it all down, we should look forward with great anticipation to the fulfillment of all things. Jesus reigning and ruling over everything for us, those that belong to him, should be about the most exciting thing we could think about. And we should live in light of the fact that that time's coming. And it should affect the way we think. It should affect the way we spend our time. It should affect the way we invest our resources. It should affect the way we do relationships and everything else. But we also... If, if, if you started right now living as if you knew Jesus was coming at six o'clock, you would end up dying of a lack of sleep because you'd just keep going, keep going, keep going, right? And you'd end up passing out from exhaustion. So there, there is a balance. There is, you've got to find that. Part of it's just being led by the Spirit, but in all times, believing for yourself and declaring that to live for you is Christ and to die ultimately is the greatest gain. We live in that tension. Um, and and literally, sometimes when I sit and think about it, my bones ache <laughs> as I yearn for this thing to get to the point that I'm promised here in verse 8. For the pain and the suffering and the difficulty that are a result of sin, for that to be over, I want that so bad. But I also, I also know that Jesus knows, and I also know that we're told, we're told elsewhere that The delay is not because God's slow. It's because He's patient. And He's giving us an opportunity to do as much gospel mission as possible, to tell as many people about Jesus as we possibly can before He brings all this thing to consummation. And so, if we weren't motivated before thinking about those things, we should be afterwards. I should never, ever, ever pass up an opportunity no matter what the cost is to share the gospel with somebody. It's super important. Verses 9 through 12, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son That he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Some of you wish I would have skipped those verses. Some of you don't think um, the Lord can be wrathful and loving at the same time. And I just want to say to you that that's not true. uh, That God is both perfectly just and perfectly loving. And those things are not uh, in contradiction to each other. It takes some thinking and it takes some time, uh, working through what the Bible presents about that to understand it. But if, if you have a hard time squaring that, I would suggest that you, um, get with some folks in your community group, do something. It's very important that you can understand and that you do understand that God is both just and loving and that those don't fight each other. Okay. They work together. Um, I know that many of you will be uncomfortable and not like these verses but I just want to submit to you that the vengeance and wrath of God that many find so unsettling is the only reason that we are free to love and forgive with abandon. Let me read you this verse. Romans 12, 19 says this. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Never take your own revenge, beloved. How many times can you do it? Never. Never. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Forgive me if you've heard this story before. I'm going to tell the abridged version for the sake of time, but it is the uh, absolute most profound example I have to give you of this principle. Um, Several years ago, I... I walked into a job site, and in the time between I walked in one door and out the other, somebody jumped in my van and stole just about every tool that I owned. And um, the, the story's pretty long. Bottom line, I chased them. I got, I jumped a fence, chased them. Cops refused to come. I then decided I was going to catch them and fix the problem myself. And uh, I was driving a, you know two-ton work van. They were in, like, a Pontiac Grand Dam, and so uh, they ended up getting away from me, and uh, I went back, made a police report. When I gave him the license plate number, I looked over the cop's shoulder, memorized the address. Soon as he left, I went, and I knocked on doors, looked for these guys. I spent hours, the whole rest of the day. I was in a blood-red rage I was a Christian, I'm not in any way, I want you to know that this is, sin, this is the sinful and shameful part of the story, um, but my intention was to find them and do whatever it took to get my tools back, and maybe a little bit more, because I felt violated personally, um, and the pride in me was saying things to my own head like, oh, they, they, I'm the wrong one, man. They stole tools from the wrong one today, right? I'm hyping myself up with that kind of nonsense, because I'm something special. So that's the mindset I'm in. Um, spent the whole rest of that day, didn't work, was hunting for tool stealers, got up the next day, went early, ran the same neighborhood, same route, I'm asking questions, describing the car, trying to find these guys, um, nothing came up, so I ended up going back to the job site and, uh, I had to walk to the back to check something and I was coming back around and I could take you and point to the spot in the grass where I, I lifted my foot and as my foot rested... I was just dwelling on this stuff. And the same kind of darkness that used to compel me in everything, was, was, it was coming back. And it was motivating me in the way I was thinking about what I wanted to do to these guys. And as my foot hit the grass, God stopped me, froze me in place. And he said this to me. He said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And I had a decision to make right there. Either I was going to continue on the path I was on, and I was going to do that—I was going to fix this and find these guys and make something happen, or I was going to trust God to do it. And uh, by God's grace, I repented right there for taking His place and thinking I was going to be somehow His right hand of justice upon the earth. Uh, I repented, and, and instantly, what happened when I was able to trust that what He was going to do would be justice—that what I would do was only going to lead to more pain for myself. What he was going to do would be exacting justice perfectly in the situation. As soon as I was able to trust that, here's something that happened. Not only was I able to release it, but what came behind it was compassion for the guys that stole my tools. I didn't just end up repenting for what I wanted to do to them. I ended up praying for them and asking God to help them. Whatever the situation was, I assumed it was addiction to some narcotics, whatever was causing them to break in people's vans and steal their tools I ended up finding myself on my knees in the grass praying for God to deliver them. The cops told me when they came and dusted for fingerprints and this stuff, they said, here's the reality. Your tools are gone and we'll probably not catch these guys. I said, okay. I mean, that was part of why I decided I was gonna do it myself. It's like, okay, thanks, guys. Um, And two weeks later, I got a call. Somehow they caught the guys, didn't recover the tools, but the guys did go to jail, which meant if they were, they went to jail for about a year, so it meant they were given an opportunity that I hope they took to get some resources to get help. Ended up paying restitution for the tools, and I ended up, uh, some folks that loved me found out about it, and so an offering into my life, and insurance paid some money towards the tools. I ended up with new, better tools than I had. Here's the other way it could have gone. If I would have not given that, I guarantee you this is what would have happened because I'm good at finding people. Some of y'all have been found in here. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) I can find people. If I would not have relinquished what was going on in me right at that moment and trusted God that vengeance was his and he would handle it, I would have kept going and I would have found him. And something bad would have went down. Probably would have ended up me killed. Who knows? Over some tools I could have left my wife-husbandless, right? Foolishness. But the vengeance of God and the fact that he is fully just and able to exact vengeance where it's needed, that his wrath is perfect and he'll handle it, allowed me to relinquish it, and not only relinquish it, but care about those guys' souls. So the wrath that you find unsettling is actually what frees you to love and forgive. Because you, even as an image-bearer of God, you have a sense of justice. Sometimes it's twisted and kind of bent to your own perspective, and we got to submit that to Christ as well, but ultimately um, if a small child is stolen from their parents and abused by somebody, you should be upset about that. You should want justice to be served. But you should trust that God will handle that in this life and in eternity. He will exact justice perfectly. Because of that, you are freed by that fact to love and extend grace and forgiveness and mercy. So we should not be so unsettled and upset by the fact, and here's why God, we should leave vengeance and justice to him. He's the only one that's perfect. So he's the only one that can exact it perfectly. Your tainted, sinful perspective is gonna cause justice to be skewed from your perspective. You see that? So we can love and forgive and be merciful because of Christ. And we can trust that These scriptures are true, that ultimately, um, for those that refuse to yield and obey the many loving calls of God to submit to him, it's going to be handled. Our job is to tell as many people as we can about Jesus, to extend love and mercy to them. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful. Today, I'm thankful that I don't have to be in the, you know, heavenly justice department. Because I wouldn't do a good job at that. Uh, in verses 10 through 12, we, we really what we're seeing is a summary of the psalm as a whole, but it's also it's a summary of the same sentiment we see in Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20. Let me read you this. And this is really over and over again kind of God's message to us, right? And somehow we foolishly reject it. Here's what he says starting in verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. In that, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, idolatry is always the issue, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing to the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Guys, I don't know why we make this so complicated. God's made it really easy for us. I love you. I love you. I love you. Here's life, here's death, and I'll give you the answer. Choose life. Life is going to be found in relationship with me that's going to cause you to obey me and love me and serve me, and that's what you were made for. Just, just choose that. And that's, like, in light, in light of that, th- doesn't this question make more sense? Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? I think part of the sentiment of the psalmist is, like, God, like, seriously, what what is there to rebel against? A God that made us and loves us and promises to protect us and provide for us and wants us to be in an incredibly beautiful relationship with him? What are we fighting against? What cords and chains are we casting off? This is utter foolishness. It's a vain thing. And ultimately, all your fighting is not going to matter anyway. Remember? It's all going to end up in brokenness and sadness for you. And all the time, God's been standing there with, here's life. Would you please take this? I love you. It's what I made you for. It's not as complicated as we make it. And this, and this is the offer of the gospel. This is, what we have to, this is what we have to be able to present to people. Guys, there's two ways you can do this. You can reject God. You can rebel against God. You can decide you know more than God. Yes, absolutely you can. Or you can realize that God made you and thus knows more than you. You can acknowledge the fact that he's perfect and you are not. And that puts you in a desperate place of needing his help. Because once we are imperfect, we don't have the power to make ourselves perfect again. That's why God had to send Christ. He did that. Jesus came and lived a perfect life so that he could then die in our place for our sins and let us share in his perfection because ours was broken. Is is your perfection broken? Anybody here maintain perfection up till now? How about today? Probably not, right? How about right now when you're thinking, man, he's really preaching a long time. Shut it, we're almost done. No, we're not perfect, and so we're in desperate need of a savior. And, 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 and what we've been offered is a beautiful gift of salvation that is not based on works, it's not based on you doing something hard, it's based on this. Hey, hey, I made you. Hey, hey, I love you. Here's, here's what I need you to do in order to be, the relationship between us be fixed. Just believe that. Believe I made you and I love you and I made a way that your sin problem could be fixed. Will you trust that? Trust that? Trust that death and sin couldn't, couldn't hold me and I rose from the grave? And then I'm making intercession for you today and that ultimately the end of this plan is that you and me are together forever. Will you believe that? Sounds like a pretty good deal. Here's death, here's life. Would you please, would you please, today and tomorrow and for the rest of your life, choose life. And when you please start spending as much of your life as possible offering the hope of the life of God to others. To have the life of God is to be called to share the life of God and that only comes through the finished work of Christ. We have to tell as many people as we can about Jesus, guys. Because if they're not, if they haven't chosen life, if they haven't chose life so far, what are they in? Death. And that should break us. We should care about it. May we be a people who live in the truth obeying God because we believe His love for us is perfect and His intentions for us are good. May we rejoice in the midst of our longing for that great and glorious day when all the nations and even the ends of the earth are brought into submission to our Savior King. And may we be a people who take refuge in our God and choose life through relationship with Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its perfection. We thank you, Lord, for this psalm. We're thankful, Lord, that you are loving and wrathful, that sin breaks your heart, but that you've also promised to deal with it. I thank you, Lord, that we are free not to have to exact justice and vengeance ourselves, but we know that you will do that perfectly. And uh, Lord God, we just ask that you would help us to choose life. You've made it really simple for us. I love you, so love me back. (laughs) I I only want good for you, so just obey me. And if you do that, you'll have life. God, help us. Help us to stop straining in vain against you. Help us to quit imagining you as somebody that would have us chained and bound with cords. Help us to quit being foolish. God, help us to live in the freedom that comes inside the boundaries of safety you've provided. We are free to serve you. We are free to worship you. We are free to obey you. We don't have to be slaves to sin and death anymore. Thank you that you've made us free through your finished work. Help us, Lord God. Help us, Lord, to walk around every single day offering to undo the shackles of others with the good news of your gospel. We love you and we praise you. We give you all honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.